Well, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the first chapter of the book of Acts. If you need a copy of the scriptures, there's one nearby you. It's on page 855. Uh, you might want to look there so that you can examine the text with us together this morning. Let me just say I noted uh, as the young people were dismissed for uh, children's church, just you know the herding of children out of the auditorium, and um, that delights my soul see that and uh, to, to see them here in the service with us one and then uh, eagerly anticipating going to receive instruction on their level um, it's a great thing uh, parents part of being a, a good spiritual example to your children and helping them know what this world is all about a very large part of that is just bringing them here and uh, making that a priority. Your children pick up on that very quickly. They know what's important to you. Uh, you want a humbling experience? Ask your children sometime what is the most important thing, what, what they think the most important thing in life is, that you think is the most important thing. Um, by bringing them consistently to worship with God's people and putting them in places like this and making that a top priority, uh, you demonstrate to them that God is important. And we as a family uh, worship him and honor him, and nothing takes place of that. So I just want to encourage you with that. That, uh, that, that, will, that. that is a seed that will reap a good harvest later in their life. All right? So let me encourage you that way. That was free. You don't have to pay for that. Um, but, but vitally important. Acts chapter 1. It was about two months ago, back in the middle of February, that uh, we began a series on Lord's Day morning entitled Highlights in the Life of Christ. We have gone successively through on these Lord's Days that we've sent together to look at certain events in the life of Jesus that really are highlights that we often think of with regard to his work and ministry. We've noted his incarnation <clears throat> when he came as a baby, his baptism, the temptation in the wilderness, his transfiguration on the mount, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. On Good Friday, we noted together his crucifixion. And of course, last Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, we noted his resurrection from the grave and triumph over death. You might think that Resurrection Sunday, last Sunday, was the climax of this series. It's not. If we end with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we overlook a very, very significant event in the life of our Lord. It's unfortunate in some ways that we pay a lot of attention <clears throat> to Jesus coming into the world. We have Christmas, and there's fanfare, and there's angels, and there's stars, and there's wise men, and there's shepherds, and we make a big deal about that. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but when we think of Jesus, we often think of Christmas and incarnation. And of course, last Lord's Day, we thought of Resurrection Sunday, and there are lilies, and spring, and the empty tomb, and uh, much more singing, and prepared music, and it's a wonderful Sunday. 
But oftentimes the emphasis goes upon those things and we entirely overlook a final and greatly significant event in the life of our Lord. Jesus came into this world with a sense of pageantry and significance as the angels sang in Jerusalem. But Jesus also left this world. And that is just as much cause for great celebration. What happened to Jesus after the resurrection? Was that it? What happened next? And is it important? This morning, I want us to look at together the ascension of Christ. Jesus ascended to heaven. When's the last time that you just sat down and really thought about the ascension of Jesus and its significance and its importance? Well, maybe we overlook it because the ascension itself as an event is recorded only three places in the New Testament. One of those places is in the long ending of Mark. We won't look at that. But it's Luke that records for us in two places this event. One is at the end of his gospel in Luke 24. And he opens up his second volume, the book of Acts, with this event in Acts chapter 1, as was read in your hearing this morning. However, the ascension of Jesus Christ is mentioned in 11 other New Testament books. And it's mentioned with great theological significance. That this event wasn't just a way for Jesus to leave the earth, but this event was actually something significant theologically. It made a statement, as it were. Let me show you just the importance of this event and how some of the New Testament writers address it. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2 in your Bible. Again, if you have a pew Bible or a, <clears throat> a chair Bible, I guess we should call it, it's on page 921. The little book of Ephesians. This is now the Apostle Paul writing, and, and if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that this is a very familiar passage regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Paul goes into some great detail. In Philippians 2, notice with me verse 5. Paul writes to believers and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, think this way. And he's going to give an example of Jesus. Verse 6, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What would you call that? What is he describing in verses 6 and 7? He's describing the incarnation. Jesus stepped out of heaven, took upon himself humanity, and lived among us in the likeness of men. Now look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is that? That's crucifixion. Paul says this is significant. Jesus died on a cross. That's crucifixion. What would you expect next? You have incarnation. You have crucifixion. What would you think would come next? 
Resurrection. Ah, but look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul goes from incarnation to crucifixion to what? Ascension. And he says, this is vital. This actually completes the story. And without it, we're incomplete. The resurrection of Christ is not the ultimate end for Jesus, but rather his ascension. Augustine said this about the ascension. He said, for unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity would have come to nothing and his passion would have borne no fruit for us, and his most holy resurrection would have been useless. The ascension is an important, significant event. In fact, Jesus himself spoke of his ascension while on earth. Here in the Gospel of John, in three different times, he mentions it. In John 3.13, he said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Jesus ties these things together. He came from heaven, and he's going back there. He's ascending back to heaven. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this, Do you take offense at this? And he was talking about his body being given. He says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, would you take offense at that? But by implication, Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. In John chapter 7, Jesus says this to his disciples, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Speaking of his ascension back to the Father. So when you come to the book of Acts, and we open up, and we read of the ascension of Jesus in this account, it's not a small thing because it's only recorded here and at the end of Luke's gospel. It's actually a very profound thing. It's something Jesus talked about and the other New Testament writers focus in on. But Luke's point in Acts chapter 1 is this. Luke makes the point that the success of the church, the ongoing mission of Jesus' followers is tied to this event that without this ascension, the work doesn't carry on. It must happen. It's of vital importance. And it's of great comfort to we, his followers. So that's what I want you to get this morning is this. The ascension of Christ is of vital importance and great comfort to every believer. Why is that the case? And how, you may ask? Well, this morning we're going to note two things from the text. The occasion of the ascension, let's just read it carefully so we know exactly what happened, and then we're going to look at its significance. Why was it so important? And with that, we'll be done. But as you can imagine, the points are somewhat long. All right? So let's look this morning, first of all, the occasion of Jesus' ascension. The occasion. 
And here we're going to look at Acts 1, particularly in this first chapter. And I want us just to know kind of a timing. Let's look at what happened before the ascension, what happened as the ascension was taking place, and then what happened immediately after it. And that's going to be our approach this morning. Please note with me the events before the ascension, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're told in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1 that Jesus presented himself alive to them, his apostles, after his suffering by many proofs to them during how long? Forty days. Luke goes back and he says there was this 40-day time period, and that's what we're given by Luke, after his resurrection until the time that he ascended back to heaven. There was 40 days. Now, 40 is a significant number in the Bible. 40 is actually, if you look at it in the Scripture, it's God's time frame for testing and proving. For instance, Noah took his family and went into an ark with all the animals that God had brought to him. And it rained for how long? Do you remember? 40 days and 40 nights. And that was a sign that there was actually a proving of all of those with Noah in the ark, safe in God's design, proving and demonstrating their acceptance by God apart from those that rejected God and drowned in the floodwaters. We're also told of Moses. Before Moses was ready to deliver the people of God from Egypt, he was in Midian, we're told, how long? Do you remember? Forty years. And that was a time of testing for Moses. It was a time of preparation for him during that time frame so then he would be proven, demonstrated to be God's chosen prophet and be able to go back and deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. And when Moses did that and he delivered those people out of Egypt, they in turn were to go into the promised land, but disobeyed God, and therefore God said he would lead them into testing how long? Do you remember? Forty years in the wilderness. Again, it was a time of testing and proving these people. Closer to the event that we read of in the book of Acts, we're told that Jesus, remember when we studied his temptation together, that Jesus went out into the wilderness to face Satan. And do you remember how long he was there? Forty days. It was a time of testing. It was a time of trial and confirming that Jesus faced the enemy and was victorious. Jesus prepared 40 days for his public ministry. And so now you have 40 days between his resurrection and the ascension. And those 40 days are to prove his apostles. They're to demonstrate their, uh, the, the things that they need in order to be prepared for a lifetime of ministry that will ensue in the book of Acts. So what happened during those 40 days to prepare them? What kind of things did they need? Well, look at verse 2 in our text. We'll begin in verse 1. Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, that's the gospel of Luke, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, what, given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
What did Jesus do during those 40 days? When he appeared to the apostles during those 40 days, he gave them commands. The term command used in verse 2 is a term that is used of, of a soldier given marching orders. It's not like these are up for debate. Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. These are the commands. This is what you must do after I leave. What are those commands? Well, some were individual, like to the apostle Peter in John 21. He tells Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But some of those commands are corporate to all, like we read of at the end of the Gospels, where Jesus says in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I've commanded you. These followers of Jesus during those 40 days, they had no reason to wonder what to do. Jesus gave them the commands, here's what you must do. The only question was, would they obey? Now, isn't that the hardest thing for us? Someone has once said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand and yet find myself not doing. Well, Jesus gives command. He's preparing them for ministry. The question is, will they do what he's commanded? Here's the other thing that Jesus does. Look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to these apostles after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during these 40 days. In preparation for Jesus' continuing work through his disciples, he presented proof of his bodily resurrection, giving confirmation that he was truly alive. What were the nature of these appearances? We're told, Luke says, many proofs were given. He's appearing to them in many proofs. If you saw someone die and maybe come back from the, the grave, you might immediately assume, well, this is some kind of spirit or apparition. But do you remember what Jesus did in some of those appearances? He said, Thomas, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Another thing he did during one of those appearances, on two occasions actually, he sat down and he said, give me something to eat. And he ate before them. And what was he doing? What kind of proof was he giving? I'm not just a spirit. This is a bodily resurrection. Now, the scriptures record for us 10 resurrection appearances during those 40 days. Were there others? Perhaps. I think probably likely. But there were at least 10 different appearances in which Jesus did different things to demonstrate that he was actually alive. And let me just ask you this. Were those proofs convincing? Did they actually prove that? How would you know? The people that had those proofs did it change them? Yeah, it radically changed them. They went from those forsaking Christ on the night of his crucifixion to those now embracing because they've seen him alive and they're proclaiming it even at loss of their life. Those proofs did the job. They were convinced and they were willing to die for that truth. 
And so during these 40 days, Jesus gives his apostles commands in verse 2. He gives them these indisputable proofs that he's alive during these 40 days. And finally, in verse 3, we're told that Jesus was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. I'm not going to get into that this morning, but Jesus is talking to them about why he came and what that means. And so for these 40 days, Jesus was banishing doubts, answering questions, giving commands, demonstrating the fact that he's alive. But now there's something different. You see, the nature of these appearances for Jesus was that he would appear, he would talk, he would eat, and then he would disappear. And he would appear at another location, and he would discuss with them, and he would disappear. And they were always left with this idea that, okay, when's, he, when's his next appearance? When's he going to be back? But now, at this event, the event of the ascension, this now is demonstrating this is something final. It's not going to be like these last 40 days because they're actually going to see him ascend and disappear into heaven. And it's bringing a finality about this event. So the manner of his ascension assures that he will not appear again until his bodily return to this earth. This ascension is final and it's decisive. So exactly what happened during this time? Well, this is taking place at a place east of Jerusalem near Bethany, Luke tells us in Luke 24. It happens on the Mount of Olives. That's a place where the Lord often retreated to there for rest and for instruction. It was a very familiar place to him and his disciples. And let's notice what happened during this ascension. Look at verse 9 in Acts 1. We're told that when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There's two things in Acts 1. There's one other thing given us in Luke 24. And I want you to turn back to that. Look at Luke 24. <clears throat> and notice with me verse 50. Luke 24, 50 reads of Jesus, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Luke 24, 50 and 51. What Luke tells us at the end of his gospel is this, that Jesus blessed them. He held up his hands as a sign of blessing. This was a typical Jewish custom that you would Hold up your hand over someone and you would pronounce a blessing. Oftentimes this occurred in the temple with, with travelers that would come during one of the feasts and they would come to the temple and there they would uh, worship the Lord. And even as they, they left the temple, the priest would hold up his hand in blessing and he would pronounce a blessing upon these people. That uh, One blessing that's probably familiar to you is given in the book of Numbers the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, right? That's a blessing. You could almost see a priest holding up his hands on this as people are leaving. As you go from this place, the Lord bless you and keep you. What's interesting in Luke's account is that Jesus isn't pronouncing the blessing of the Lord. What's he doing? He is the Lord. He's blessing. 
And the last thing these disciples are seeing is the Lord himself with outstretched hands over them pronouncing blessing. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving now, but it doesn't mean I'm not with you. And he's pronouncing this blessing upon them. This is one of the last things the disciples see about him. Those nail-scarred hands blessing them. Here's what else happens at the event. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, we're told that Jesus was lifted up. Acts 1 and verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Now, the translation helps us with this, but I want to be technical just a minute with the language. He was lifted up is what we call a passive verb. Right? I hate to take you back to English class, right? but this is important. It's kind of dead in here. I feel like we have a post-Easter letdown. All right? I'm telling you, man, the ascension is awesome, okay? So, so stick with me, all right? English class, you have active verbs. If I hit a ball, I am acting on the ball. That's an active verb. If I am hit by the ball, the ball is acting on me. I'm passive. I'm being hit. When you come to Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, it's intentional. <clears throat> when we think of Jesus' ascension, we think, well, yeah, Jesus just floated up to heaven. But the verb is passive. It's saying Jesus was being acted upon. He was lifted up. He's not doing the acting. He's being received, as it were. He's being taken up. Who's taking him up? It's the Father, as indicated by the cloud into which he ascends. The Father is taking him up. And what is the symbolism? It's this. Mankind has done their very best to reject my son, this king, and they have tried to snuff out his life and put him in a grave. But I had other plans. And now I will lift him up to the highest of places to ensure that he is king over all. And this is the nature of the ascension. It's the father proclaiming his son as absolute sovereign. We know this to be the case because the end of verse 9 says that a cloud took him out of their sight. Clouds in the scripture indicate the glory of God. It's, it's as if God's presence is somehow shrouded in a cloud because no one can look on God and live. So God, when he manifests himself to humanity, graciously clouds his glory in a cloud so that people have a sense of God's presence, but they don't die. So here you have Jesus is lifted up by the Father into this cloud, into God's very presence. And Jesus is accepted back to heaven as the King of Kings. One writer said this, the ascension was not the beginning of Jesus' heavenly exaltation, 
It was rather the ultimate confirmation of the status that has been his from the moment of his resurrection. The cloud which hid him from their sight indicated to them his total envelopment in God's presence and glory. This is the idea of Jesus' ascension. Finally, I want us to note the events immediately following the ascension. Look at what happened in verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Stop right there, wouldn't you? You know, we look at this and we think, well, what are these guys doing? Don't they know they had things to do? Well, put yourself in their shoes. That's what I'm doing. What have I just witnessed? It says they're gazing. It's their eyes are fixed. They're trying to figure this out. The disciples gaze. Perhaps they're expecting another appearance or an immediate return. Perhaps they're thinking, okay, let's just hang out here until he comes back. I mean, he said he was coming back, so let's just hang out here. We don't know, but if that was their spirit, which might be the case, and and we, we think it might be the case because of what the angels say to them. So keep reading in the text, verse 10. The disciples were gazing into heaven as he went. He's eventually taken out of their sight by a cloud. And behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I already gave this away, but who do you think they are? They're angels. The the angelic company announced Christ's arrival at earth. Two angels were there to make sure they were at the the empty tomb to make sure the disciples were clear about what had happened. And now it shouldn't be surprising that we have two angels that are at this event to clarify for the apostles what has just happened and what they are to do. And here's what they say. Verse 11. They said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? That's kind of a rebuke, isn't it? Remember what I said? If you were there like me, I I would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm staring into heaven. And they're kind of like, that's not the right response. Why are you standing here just gazing and looking? Why would they say that? Remember, they, these apostles, had just heard what Jesus told them to do. One of these things was this. Look back at verse 4. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. In one of these conditions, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem. I want you to go back to the city. And you go in there and you wait for something there. They're standing at the Mount of Olives, gazing into heaven, and the angels are saying, okay, it's time to get busy. Jesus told you what to do. Go back to Jerusalem. Something's going to happen there. You need to wait for it there. And then they say this. Look at verse 11 again. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Two things the angels tell these men. Get busy. He's given you something to do. And take heart. He's coming back. This isn't the last you'll see of him. Get busy and take heart. The facts are clear. Jesus ascended to heaven in bodily form into a cloud. And I want to conclude this morning with the ramifications of this. That's the event. What's the significance of this? Why does it matter? Well, I want you to look at John 16 with me, if you will. Turn to the Gospel of John. It's the book right before Acts. You turn back just a few pages, and you're in the 16th chapter. John 14 through 16 is what we call the upper room discourse. We're going back uh, 40 days, uh, more than that, uh, from Acts chapter 1. And Jesus is with his disciples. It's the night of his betrayal. And he is preparing them for what will happen in the next few days, namely his arrest and crucifixion. And Jesus says something rather peculiar to them. He, he introduces this topic in the upper room, and he starts talking about his leaving them, that he's going to depart from them. And he's been with them for three years. They have spent time knowing him. They have seen him. They have seen the miracles. They have heard his teaching. And they've been greatly encouraged. And now Jesus says he's leaving them. And there's cause for great concern. And they're troubled. But notice what Jesus says about his leaving them in John 16. Look at verse 4. He says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. What's he referring to? He's ultimately going to be referring to, when he goes back to the one who sent him, it's, it's God the Father. He's saying there's going to be an ascension. He's going back to heaven. And he says, and none of you ask me where you're going. That's kind of a rebuke that Jesus gives to them. They're so concerned about themselves and what's going on with them. And he's kind of saying, and not one of you really asked me where I'm going. But look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, they're very self-absorbed about this. But this is key, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your what? advantage that I what? Okay, stop right there. What Jesus actually tells them is this. The fact that I will ascend back to my Father is advantageous for you. It's best for you. Okay, now think with me. You're here, a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. Honestly, don't answer out loud or raise a hand, but have you ever thought oh, man, I wish I would have been alive when Jesus was. I could have seen the things that he's done. I, I could have heard his voice. Oh, I, I wish I had that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But Jesus would say to you, guess what? You are in a more advantageous position. It's advantageous to you that I went away. Do you believe that? 
Now you're scratching your head, right? You're like, ah. look at the verse. Look at verse 7. I tell you the truth. It's your advantage that I go away. Why? Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Who's the helper? It's the Holy Spirit. Notice it's capital H. And Jesus says this. Here's what must happen. I must go away, ascend back to the Father. And when I do, I will send a helper. And there will be great advantage for you in that. What is the advantage of the Holy Spirit coming after Jesus ascended to heaven? Well, let's say you did live during the time of Jesus. Well, let's say you lived in Western Europe. You would have never seen him. Let's say you lived even in Palestine with a throng of crowds. You think you could have gotten close enough to have a personal conversation with him? I mean, do you think you really could have sat down and had a one-on-one -on -one interview with Jesus? No, that would have been very difficult. There's, there's few episodes of that that we read in the Gospels. Jesus' presence was localized on earth while he was incarnate, or while he was on earth. The crowds thronged him, but not all could touch him, and not all could be near him. But now Jesus says, I'm going away, and it's to your advantage because I'm sending the Spirit. How is this advantageous? Let me give you the point, and I'm going to follow it up. Jesus' ascension makes possible his personal presence with every believer. His personal abiding presence within you. That was not possible before his ascension. Well, what do you mean by that? Let me give you some verses. Romans 8, Paul says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And what he just means is, is as a follower of Jesus, you have come to Christ. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. See what he's saying? When you come to Christ by faith, it's the helper, it's the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell you and live within you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of who? Okay, what does that tell you about the spirit? He's distinct from Jesus as a person. Nevertheless, what does he communicate to your spirit? It's the presence of Christ. He says, if anyone does not have this spirit of Christ, or who does not have the spirit of Christ, does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, how is Christ in us? Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's another verse. Look at Ephesians 3. Paul is praying for believers, and he prays this, that according to the riches of his glory, he, that is God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that who may dwell in your heart? Christ would dwell in your heart. How? Through faith. What the New Testament is teaching us is this, that Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven and he sent his spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people so that his people would always have the presence of Jesus. They would always know his comforting presence with them. Why is that important? Why is it advantageous? What is the advantage of having Jesus' presence with us? Let me give you one example quickly. The Apostle Peter 
When Jesus is with Peter in Matthew 16, Peter makes this profession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, God has shown this to you, and Peter is very bold in that confession. In Mark 14, when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, he gets out of the boat, and he walks on the water. Why? Because Jesus is there, and he'll lift me up. Now, I know he took his eyes off Jesus, but he was restored. None of the other disciples got out of the boat. But Peter's bold in that. In Matthew 26, it was mentioned in the call to worship this morning, Peter, in the presence of Jesus, when the guards come, what does he do? He gets out his sword, and he's very bold, a fisherman with a sword. And he's going to defeat this Roman army. Not likely, but he's with Jesus, and everything will be fine. Now think about Peter when he's not with Jesus. In John 18, when Peter's at a distance and he's warming himself by a fire, and a little non-threatening maiden comes and says, I think you're one of his followers. What does he do? He cowers. He denies. And he swears an oath. Think of even after the resurrection in John 21. There's been these appearances. Peter's seen it. But even after the resurrection, Peter says, I'm going fishing. He, he, he basically is saying, I'm going back to what I did before. He knows Jesus is alive, but he's, he's kind of like, I, I don't really know what to do. I'm, I'm going to go fishing. And that's where Jesus takes him, and he has breakfast with him by the, the seashore. And he says, Peter, here's what I want you to do. Feed my sheep. Well, what will happen to Peter when Jesus ascends? I mean, now Peter's looking, and Jesus goes into the cloud, and he's gone. And Peter knows... <laughs> When I was with Jesus, things were pretty good, but when he's not here, I'm a little shaky. But you tell me what happens to Peter in Acts chapter 2. Look at it. Look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. This is 50 days after these people have crucified Jesus. And Peter stands up in the very city where Jesus was crucified in verse 22, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is bold. He's speaking plainly. He's speaking the truth. Why? Because Jesus is with him. How? Through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that had come upon him. That has assured him 
that the power of Christ rests with him. And he knows the presence of his ascended Lord, and he's filled with boldness. That's why Jesus says, it's to my advantage, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, all my followers will know the indwelling presence of the Spirit and the relationship with me through him. Jesus' ascension makes possible his personal presence with every believer. And finally, Jesus' ascension pictures his personal return. Go back to Acts chapter 1. The last thing the angels say is this in verse 11. Jesus will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He went into a cloud and disappeared And what they say is he's coming back in the same way. In the clouds, Jesus often said. We saw this in Revelation 19 in our study of the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming back in clouds just as he left. How did he leave? He ascended in bodily, visible form. He's coming back in the clouds in bodily, visible form. This is how he'll return. This is the significance of of the ascension. I want to conclude with two applicable thoughts. Remember I said the ascension of Christ is of vital importance and of great comfort to every believer. What are the importance of these things? Number one, the ascension provides believers with a deep-seated comfort at the present time. Beloved, do you believe that Jesus is always with you? can't see him, can't hear his voice, but do you know the presence of the Lord within you? Peter says it this way to the church, whom having not seen, we love. And there is a sense that Jesus is with me, that he has not left me or forsaken me. Typically, it's in our darkest of times when physically ailing or emotionally hurting or struggling that Romans chapter 8 says it's the Spirit of God that cries out into our hearts that we're children of God. That though all be dark in this broken world, I'm not alone. God is with me. Jesus is with me. I read a missionary story this week. It was actually an update from a missionary who's working in the Middle East. As I was preparing this, I thought of this young man that he mentions in his story. This missionary writes, last week... He had some big news. He's referring to a young man who had made a profession of faith and and had come to faith in Christ, Middle Eastern man. And he says of this new convert, last week he had some big news. His mother and sister were coming to visit him from Turkey. He said his father had passed away many years ago. The missionary says, I really prayed for him to have courage to speak of his faith in Christ and be a witness to them. And I rejoice to tell you that God answered It was an amazing opportunity for him to share his faith face to face. But, 
As might be expected, his mother was extremely hurt and angry. She said she disowned him. His sister stopped speaking to him. They cut their visit short and returned to Turkey. This young convert anticipates that his mother may try to get his younger brother to come talk some sense into him. And I asked him, do you think he might try to hurt you? He said, I'm not sure. The missionary goes on and says, this young convert's very sad, but we took hope from the scriptures. Psalm 27.10, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. When all else have forsaken me, the Lord is with me. And I'm never alone. That's not possible apart from the ascension. That was Jesus' plan all along. What do we take from the ascension? It provides us with a deep-seated comfort at presence. We have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us. It's the presence of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ within us. Secondly, the ascension provides believers with a sure hope for the future. Remember what they said? He'll come again in the same way he's left you. Things are bleak. Now, I'm with you. But guess what? They won't always be bleak. I'm coming again. There's something to look forward to. I'll be back. I'm coming back to make everything right. And this is what Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel. Behold, I'm with you always. Right? Because of the ascension. To the end of of the age. This age will end. What will be its end when Jesus comes back? Beloved, do you now see why the ascension of Jesus Christ is of vital importance and great comfort to every believer? Let's pray together.